My name is Ocean Wulung, and I'm a poet, novelist, essayist, and professor. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? Oh, this is a question I, I think about often on and off, and I always have different answers. But I think right now, at this point in my life, I think being Vietnamese is being innovative and creative. And, and I think you can say this for every culture, you can say this for every peoples, but when it comes to my thinking of Vietnamese people, both in the homeland and in the diaspora, it's innovation that has moved our culture forward. Even just what we've done with rice, right? You know, you look at a cuisine that is based almost entirely on rice and all the different forms that we've done with it. You know, there's so much, you know, that we reconstituted. And I see, I see that as a metaphor of how we've adapted and innovated and pushed forward in art, culinary, linguistics, science, culture, dance, philosophy. Um, and so I, to me, the, the most pervasive uh, notion of being Vietnamese is to be constantly innovating regardless of where we are, what has happened to us, um, and, and where we are in time. We are, we are truly innovators. And I think, I, I feel really proud of us for that. And I feel like we are in a period right now where we're given so much um, opportunity. And I, I wanna shout out to Bao Nguyen, which is a dear friend of mine who made the introduction to you, and I'm forever grateful for that. And uh, he speaks very highly of you and says hello. Bao is a genius. He has many fans and uh, we're all rooting for him all the time. Yeah, that's how he feels about you too. I mean, uh, he's turned me on to so many podcasts uh, with you, um, mainly the one with Krista Tippett on being yeah. for everyone who, who um, wants to get um, a really good picture of you. That wow. episode with Krista Tippett on being is, is phenomenal. I, you know, the more I study you in the last year, the more I've realized, like, if we had somebody like you growing up, I'm, I'm 46, and the generation that I, I came up in, we had to suffer through so much, and we didn't have somebody with a voice like yours, so powerful and so uh, assured um, in, in the way that um, you, you present yourself. And I, I weep for my, my generation and the pain that we, we've gone through. So I want to thank you so much for being you and coming to terms with so much of the stuff that we've dealt with in, in, in our past. Well, thank, thank you so much for saying that, Kenneth. I think, yeah, and you know, frankly, I know we are different in generations, but when it comes to impact, I'm right in the same boat as you. Like I didn't have... Uh, anyone like myself either growing up and you know it, and, and I saw like the media distortions of Asian people at large um, and you know that does a number on your psyche and so it, it's actually really sad that it happens through so many generations that we can now even look at 
Asian representation as almost um, as black and white as today and yesterday, right? There's just like one, you know, there's so many years, so many decades, right? All the way back from, you know, the, the 20s onward. But when we look at the impact of representation, it's like today, what we live in, we see more faces, Bao Wien, Liet Tang Wien, myself, so many others, yourself. And then there's just this emptiness. And not like there weren't folks, you know, before there were pioneers and trailblazers, but they did not have the same footing and the same ability to take the narrative into their own hands the way we do now. And so I, I see this both as a great loss, like this sort of void in the yesterday, but also in the today, there's also a, a collectiveness that is um, that, that spans generation, right? You and I are sitting here talking together, taking the media into our own hands, discussing and centering Vietnamese stories uh, in the present. And so it's almost like regardless of what generations we have come from, uh, in this moment, we are catching up in, on our own terms. And, and that is really, really incredible. And I think, you know, when it comes to strength, um, you know, it was always there, right? I think being raised by Vietnamese refugees, how can you not be strong? And also, how can you not be creative, right? We often look at our elders and we say, well, they, they, you know, they survived, they've uh, got here, and now they've, they've kind of uh, assimilated, right? Uh, and, and they kind of want to put their heads down and go to work, and that's kind of the trope. However, getting here is a creative act. Right. It's an innovative act, right? You, you don't just accidentally survive this many decades of colonial war, trauma, you know, displacement, um, lack of language, lack of culture, right? With so much against you, no one accidentally, you know, it's not like we were just driftwood and we just made it ashore. At every sector, our elders had to make incredibly creative decisions. And I like to honor that by saying, I'm only powerful because I've seen my elders be powerful, although they were not visible, right? Just because they were not visible, does not mean they were weak or powerless, right? So to me, I look at us and say, we are actually just the sum total of a huge and long line of powerful Vietnamese people. We just now have the means, the media and the language to articulate the strength. You know, I was trying to explain to my mother who you are in the last month. All month I've been trying to tell her about you and, and explain, and I was thinking about the difference in our language capacity in all over the United States or the diaspora, where the children explaining things to our parents, the, the articulation is not fully there. And I've wanted to ask you in, you know, I know that the, the book is, is translated into Vietnamese, but I wanted to go and ask you about um, your relationship with your mother and the language, did you ever feel like she fully understood you and you fully understood her uh, re regardless of the language barrier or if you were able to, you know, communicate in other ways uh, to fully get um, each other's uh, thoughts? A hundred percent. 
And, you know, my mother knows this even more intrinsically than I do, right? Because I'm somebody who traffics in language. And so I think I put at times too much stake on language as a medium. And when language falters, when the language, whether it's Vietnamese or English, is not capacious enough, I lose hope faster than someone like my mother would in our attempts to communicate. And I must say, you know, thinking back on our life together, you know, she passed in 2019 uh, from cancer, but I, now I look back and I, I realize that we know each other in ways that I can't describe linguistically. And I think your mother would say the same thing. And my mother always had this refrain that kind of encapsulates this knowledge, right? When she says something right, or when she knows the right time to call me when I'm kind of feeling off and down and depressed, uh, when she, you know, uh, uh, suddenly decides to make, you know, this food that I'm craving that I've never even told her about. And I said, how do you know? She says, Tao đẻ mà em Má mày mà. Tao đẻ mày. Tao không biết được, right? And, and, but that kind of, that, that, that little nice. kind of mantra mm -hmm. encapsulate what it means is that you came from me. So there's no language that could clarify that fact more so than the fact itself. And I think in that way, um, we've, we've always understood each other. And I think it has to do also with Vietnamese culture. It's, a, it's about vigilance, right? We have to pay attention to how we look at each other so that we can you know, uh, speak according to the hierarchies of pronouns. Do I say chị or chú or ông, right? So this calculation of vigilance on the person is something English does not allow. And, and there's a lot of carelessness that could come through that. But in Vietnamese, you are taught to pay attention to where you stand and where others stand in relation to you. So there's almost a mathematics. There's a calculus that happens as you move through Vietnamese culture and society, even in a diaspora. And ultimately, it's around respect. And I think in this way, we have watched and accommodated each other's bodies and anticipated each other's needs in ways that the English language does not afford. Um, and, and so I think for me, being vigilant to each other's um, vital moments of vulnerability is, is incredibly uh, rich in its, in, in its uh, uh, intrinsic value to Vietnamese identity. And that's what my mother did. She, she, she saw and paid attention and she taught me to do the same. Now, I understand that the, the book has been translated into many other languages before the Vietnamese uh, version. Yeah. What, was there a reason why uh, the, the Vietnamese version was uh, sort of delayed or um, translated much later? Um, I think, I'm not sure. You know, they, um, they came and bought the rights later. Um, the way publishing works is still sadly very Eurocentric. Um, and so the way I've been told by the agents, and this could be true or not, but most times uh, Asian agents 
um, would watch the European markets first to see you know, how things develop. And I think the same thing happened with On Earth, even though it's a Vietnamese book about Vietnamese people, you would think, uh, but it came, there's almost always a pattern, right? And so, you know, the Koreans always watch the German markets and there's all these like algorithms. Like if the Germans like it, then it usually would do well in Korea and the right. Koreans like it, it will do well in Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how it was explained to me. I don't know if that's true, um, but, it, but it was also very difficult to translate because um, I think the, the, the translator, uh, Kan Wing, um, was really careful, which I think he, it's a triumph what he was able to do um, based on how it's related to me by Vietnamese readers. Um, he really, really captured it. He was so perspicacious. Uh, he did his research. He interviewed me. He asked questions. And I think he just really wanted to get it right. The stakes were so, so high. It was also, you know, his first attempt, I think, at, at translating a, an American novel. And so he, 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 he took his time. And I think, you know, uh, it paid off. Yeah, because I think about that, too. And you're um, you calling out the pronouns and the structure and the calculus that, you know, you just spoke about. It's very complicated. It's very complex to go from um, English, which is rich in its own way, and then translating that richness into the Vietnamese language in its own rich way. Um, and we lose, I mean, we have to lose, and there's things that are lost in translation. And I, and I wondered how closely you sort of followed the words, because I know you're, you're a wordsmith and you really value what impact or how words come into our bodies and, and, and how it feels and how much of that sort of process were you involved in um, uh, along the way? Uh, I was a consultant. So I, I told him, you know, you can ask me anything when there's, um, you know, any trouble, but I wanted him to have his own agency because it's a collaboration, but it's also, you know, the translator's name is also on the cover and it's, it's as much his book as it is mine. I, I, I see myself more as a curator. Like wow. I've curated the ideas. And now it's his job to write the book again, right? Um, in, in the ways that it matters. So I didn't micromanage, but he had interesting questions, right? Um, so for example, um, the, the, it's a book written in English and it privileges the English language and its puns, its wordplay, its forms, its syntactic structures, etymologies, um, because that's the idea. The idea is that the sun has this wealth of English that should be able to explain everything. And yet all of it is lost on the mother who is outside of that language, right? So there's an exile, a linguistic exile that happens. Um, and so that's kind of the drama of the book, you know, to, to, to have this great wealth and you can't give it to the person who gave you life, right? Um, so that is part of the project is that reckoning that all, all translations will have elements of loss in them. Um, but, you know, so one interesting thing that uh, Kan Wing was uh, perplexed about was the word ma, right? And so it says, dear ma, right? And he says, so is it ma or ma, right? Shouldn't it be uh, ma? And I said, it should be translated as Mẹ, mẹ ơi. He says, why? And I said, because ma 
is English, mm -hmm. short for mama. And it's also a more countrified, pastoral uh, uh, version of ma, which is what, you know, now I'm, I'm translating the culture too, because these are rice farmers, right? So I'm borrowing the, uh, the, the, the more uh, uh, pastoral, the rural version of mother or mom and ma, right? So it's, it's still English. And so I told him, I said, it's not ma, it's ma. That's, if you were to translate it, you have to leave the English ma behind and use ma instead. Um, so that was really, really fascinating. He said, oh, it makes perfect sense, right? And did you call your mother ma? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that uh, in the South, it's ma. It's more often ma, but for whatever reason, my mother um, used ma with me. And because I think it's because we all lived in the same household in Hartford. And my grandmother was ma, right? My mother called my grandmother ma, ma, right? And so there's, if there's one more ma, it's too many ma's, right? So she, I think she, again, innovation, I'm telling you, Vietnamese people, we break the rules, right? Because the Southern style is to call everyone ma. But if you're across in a village, in a, again, you can say ma across houses. But when we were all in one bedroom, in Hartford, Ma would go crazy. So she made the distinction. She broke right. the rule, and she used the northern Ma, and you know that's how it works. So already within just one generation, innovations happen to 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 create a better life. I don't know if it's sad. A description of sad is is the right word, but sometimes you'll run into families that are um, uh, a little older, and they came before seventy five here in the U.S., and they have a a different um nomenclature for the mother um in vietnamese families like mamang or mama mm -hmm. and you hear that and that is a direct that's uh, a direct receive uh from the french sometimes you see the pride in the son or the daughter calling their their mother uh you know the last surviving matriarch I, i've seen this a few times in my life they call uh, mama um and it it, it shocks me now um, in this day and age that it, it, it goes on um, and people are probably not thinking about it, but that they they don't use ma or they don't use the Vietnamese and they proudly use a French term that was brought into history at that time. And, and, and it's sad. It's sad to think about, but I don't know. You know, what I wanted to ask you is, is that something um, worth for, you know, for me to let go or, or judge or uh, keep that sadness within me? I think we don't have a choice. You know, when you see that, you feel sad and that that sad is already there. It's self-generated and it's part of your instincts, right? Your instincts is telling you something that you already know. And I think part of navigating these colonial legacies is realizing that the wound is already there and then we we come over it, right? We land over the wound. And so it's it's not even a point where it's, oh, should I control the wound? It's already there. So what you're feeling, your status you're feeling is just knowledge passing over what's already here. And I feel the same way, you know, because you you realize that the power of the colonial reification is still present right and in, and they knew this right you know 
the colonial powers were also incredibly innovative. And they knew that the first step to controlling a people is to subject them to shame. That's the first step. And they've done this repeatedly in Native American genocides in America, in uh, uh, the Caribbean, in Africa, right? The first step is to say that you should be ashamed of yourselves. And this is how a civilized people do. So right. already it creates a binary of progress, right? And in which the system could be judged, right? They put a box, an ecosystem over what's already there. And then they tilt that box and create a hierarchy so that they're automatically on top, right? What is received as French is superior yeah. based on this lineation. And so when a populace is, is subdued, right, with shame via weaponry, right, weaponry and ideology, particularly Catholicism, uh, you know, what, what those two mediums become weaponized in the colonized project. Um, and so that legacy is so powerful, it has to replicate. And the sadness that goes along with it is also replicated. I mean, you can, I, I, you can go to New York right now and have restaurants called Indochine, right? And I'm like, could you imagine? I mean, just really think about it. Could you imagine, and, and they get away with it, right? And it has to do with how we police it or don't police it, right? I mean, could you imagine if there's a soul food restaurant called The Plantation? <laughs> Could you imagine? I mean, like that's how vigilant we have to be with dealing with our colonial legacies. And, be, and from that, we have a lot to learn from Black thinkers, right? The Black community in this country has dealing with oppositions since the very beginning. We have so much to learn from that. And I think I always credit, you know, Black thinkers like James Baldwin, Frederick Douglass, Phyllis Wheatley, that because they were the pioneers, if you will, of oppositional thinking in this country and so any Asian American writer coming in, even now or 10 years ago, what have you, you're coming in under the legacy that was brought forth by black thinkers. Um, and, and that's so, so important. And, but I feel that sadness as well. I mean, to this day, it's like, you know, Indochine all over the place, you know, French, you know, uh, 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 Frenchified uh, Vietnamese uh, restaurants as a site of pride. And, and usually those restaurants are the sort of quote unquote uh, upscale, right? So it's codified in the reification by borrowing a now defunct and dead colonial legacy. It, 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 how can you not be sad, right? My mother's sisters insist that they have French blood and I've taken it 23 and me. My mother's taken it. My brother's taken it. Not one iota of any European ancestry, but they continue to, and over and over again, they buy into it. And the surprises actually have a lot of Chinese blood from my father's side. Yeah. And, but they, they won't recognize it. Yeah. They won't recognize it. There's just so, it, it's so built in and caked in and they're, they're not that old. They're, you know, the youngest ones in our fifties and next one's like uh, mid fifties and sixties. And yeah. it's, it's a really depressing, um, just being around it is, is a very sad thing. And, and sadness is the right word for it too, right? Because it's very, 
it's it's important that it's not anger or shame on their behalf right. because you see the effects of it like you, you can't blame them like there's there's so much more at work on them even before they were born right these, these this is what systemic you know white supremacy is is that it's a machine it's a technology probably one of the most advanced technologies um, that we as a species have developed right and so it works on us even without any present material present even manifests right and so I, I actually like to look at that when people ask me a very common question I get when I give talks or give readings often um, you know even by Vietnamese people but often by white folks and they say well, how do you reckon with what you've gone through how do you come to terms with the violence um, the colonialism and the, the, the trauma of immigration or, or even being queer? How do you come to terms? People love that question. And we live in a culture that prioritizes and fetishizes the expert, right? So, so someone comes to a reading, they want you to be the expert of a condition and absolve them of the aporia they feel around it, right? So now you become less of a person than a medium, a vehicle, a tool to someone else's liberation. Right. And so I often like to kind of throw the wall up on that question and say, how have you come to terms with living and being privileged in a country that plundered and pillaged three million people? How does that make sense to you? At what point in your life did you think about it and come to terms with it? And then they realize it's impossible to mm. come to terms. And they say, oh, right. And so I often just say, that's not even the question I'm interested in. Because how can one person born at any given time come to terms with a devastating legacy that has been set forth hundreds of years before they were born? It's a tidal wave. It's like, it's like turning your back on a tsunami and trying to explain it to right. someone else. It's like, there's no way. And so I, I prefer a more you know, ambivalent, realist approach to say, I haven't come to terms and neither should you. That the project of reading a book is not to solve the past, but to understand the present. And, and that is a much more capacious involvement where now we can say, we're on the same boat we come from different places, but this boat is leaking and I'm not the only one that can plug it. You have to do your part too. And so changing the conversation from a, a, a quick band-aid like uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, answers and solutions and turning it into a, a perpetual and open diagnostic collectively is kind of my approach to, to you know, answering this question that Americans are so obsessed with. I want to switch gears up a little bit. Um, the Seth Meyers interview, you speak about uh, words that American, young American men and American men are programmed to sort of speak uh, in terms of violence when we describe wins and, and, and conquering. And, and, you know, that set uh, a sort of uh, an idea of who you were for me but I was quickly, um, my mind quickly changed when I listened to um, a podcast 
you were speaking with a guest about uh, you were with the host about uh, MMA, mixed martial <laughs> arts, and I was blown away. I was like, how does this uh, exist where somebody talks so much about um, you know words and and violence, and then at the other end of it, you you're not just a regular fan. You're not just a regular MMA fan. I mean, you know it so well. Because uh, I always thought I was a fan, but I am not a fan. I mean, I, I am a pedestrian just walking by compared to the, the knowledge that you. So I wanted to ask you, because my brother um, and I, we talk about this. He's really against uh, MMA. He thinks that it's ex exploitative uh, to these poor kids that are coming up uh, in the hood. Uh, we have an actual cousin. Her name is Andy Wynn. She's um, a pro MMA fighter. And we discuss this. My brother and I talk about this all the time. And I love it. I, I you know, yeah. it's something I really like to watch. How do you sort of mitigate between the, the two extremes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, any, I think any sport under the current capitalistic modes, right, which is to milk to see the fighter, not as an art. That's why, to me, I always say MMA, and I emphasize the arts in mixed martial arts, because that's where it began. And to me, that's where we have to preserve it. And I don't know if it's it's there right now, right? Because so many promotions notoriously take advantage of fighters and this goes all the way back to you know boxing and jack johnson i mean the legacy of race and poverty and class has always been tied to prize fighting and you know it's and it's all you can you can open this to other sports too right and so 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 there is systems of exploitation um everywhere there's system of exploitation in the nail salon in professors, you know, many people don't know this unless they're in the academy. But if you look at, you know, how adjuncts are paid compared to junior professors, like we live in America and this is founded on exploitation. That doesn't mean we should be passive and say whatever, right? But I'm saying that MMA is no different than the other systems of oppression that we have. With that said, I, I'm interested in the rare moments where a fighter, whether they come from the working class, the working poor or wealthy, which they do like BJ Penn, his life is handed to him, right? Um, but they get to take narratives in their own hands. And this is what really interests me, particularly for fighters of color, because it's so individualized. They are an artist and they're their fighting is the expression of their art and they curate their own narratives and they get to stand before the microphone, right? And so that to me is so valuable where we don't always see that in team sports, right? It's always like, you know, if someone says something out of line with a coach or a franchise, the franchise can correct them or lay another narrative over them and right. silence them. And this still happens with promotions, but I think it's so individualized that it's really fascinating to me. And I relate a lot to that. It's like fighters who control how they are seen and perceived from how they dress, how they dance, how they celebrate, how they, the nicknames they give themselves control their story. And I think when you look at myths in America, 
Controlling your story ultimately leads to controlling your life, right? We were all taught that the founding fathers were these great benevolent people. They had interesting teeth. They, they chopped down trees. They walked to return a penny, like these myths, right? Whether they were true or not, they still lead to this nonfiction um, mythology. This is why I insist that history is fiction, right? Mm. History is fiction. You think about it. If you think about the way the sentence works, right? The sentence leads to a decision. It's a finite tool, right? And so it's a linear uh, 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 technology that is supposed to tell a story. And even if you're writing a textbook, how you tell a, a true story creates a fiction. So I spent entire uh, months, you know, as a child studying George Washington, who he was, what he did, his bravery, people he married, his children, right? But when it comes to the Vietnam War, it was one page. And it was all written in the passive tense. Mistakes were made, bad things happened, and now it's better. Right. And so there's a cleansing of it. And all that is supposedly nonfiction. And so you realize that when someone takes the, their narrative into their own hands, they start to work against the mythologies put against them. And MMA is not perfect as we see it now. But to me, it's the one sport where you see more freedom in cre people creating their own stories. Um, and, and to me, that's very akin to being an author and an artist. And also with the masculinities, right? Something fascinating happened when I started to watch it. I realized that the fighters who have the most longevity are actually the ones that treat the sport with the most respect and treat each other with the most respect, right? You see the, the downfall of Conor McGregor Right? When he chose to use martial arts as a way to amplify masculinities and dominate those around him, you start to see his downfall, as opposed to Justin Poirier, who used it to uphold and uplift his communities, um, be an, you know, a, 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 an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, um, using it for social change in his communities. You see the difference in how the world responds. And, and, you can see the tide shifting in their impact, their fame, and ultimately their legacy. Still, both in their control, right? They both took control, but they both went very separate ways. Um, and you see someone like Leota Machida, who is the ultimate mixed martial artist, where everything is done with respect. And to me, that's actually an antidote um, to the hyper-masculinist myths that we live under, because I think we as a species are violent. We are also incredibly benevolent, right? Why do it, why is it so easy? It gives me a lot of hope looking at the research on PTSD. Because what it tells us is that soldiers who go to war and even people who survive domestic violence, they are very quickly triggered and, and, and entered into a, a, a PTSD diagnosis. And that tells me that we're not supposed to be killing each other. We're actually a very fragile species when it comes to death and murder. 
and that the impact on our psyche uh, it happens immediately. That we're not meant to be killing folks in this massive way that the military industrial complex has put us under. And so I think mixed martial arts has that very innovative balance where we can express these things under the condition, these things that have been inevitable for 2000 years plus. We, we are able to kind of corral it into a sport where there is dignity um, and where so much of it is under your own agency, which is so, so important. Yeah, if you watch the career of Khabib, it's just uh, magnificent. Um, the, the the way he wins and the way he um, respects or disrespects, you know, in Connor's case, uh, the, you know, how he constructs that story. There's so much control with the way he does things. Right, right. And, it, and it's, you know, we are a species and many sociologists who are much smarter than I am have pointed that there is a reason why under the classical Greek modes of argument, the three classical modes, logos, ethos, and pathos. Pathos is the one we always respond to. We have evolved in that way, right? There's logos is obviously uh, uh, logistics and logic. Ethos is ethics. Um, and so these are all arguments, but pathos is emotion. And you can tell someone all the numbers about global warming, you know, people dying of gun violence, but it will never counter and take precedence over us hearing our neighbor in distress. We have evolved as a species to always privilege the emotional response closest to us, right? So it's all about, you know, uh, how, how wide you pull back the camera. And in MMA, the camera is so close. And so the drama of these fighters coming out of the working class, they really take over the pathos and they control the narrative for the first time because it's an emotional response. And that's what we as a culture traffic in. And that's why you see ads, a Coca-Cola ad. It doesn't just have a, a Coca-Cola saying, this tastes really great. Here are the nutritional facts that might very well kill you. You see friends gathering around warm lighting, eating dinner, mm. music, young people dancing, you know, uh, old people coming in. Into, so the, the pathos there is benevolence, community, and amicable relations, joy. We've turned a product that can give you diabetes into joy through the language, right? Through the performative and the linguistic language of pathos, it's everywhere when you when you look at it. Politicians, right? When they get to that moment when they start listing people's names, oh, I just met a plumber in Detroit uh, named Joe, and he, you know, and it's like that's pathos. And I think the more we pay attention to how pathos is used for various causes or discauses, the smarter we are to prevent ourselves getting played by larger systems who use pathos all the time. So for me as a writer, I, I argue that I'm using pathos, you know, just to reveal various aspects of communities that are important to me. The idea of um, violence in the US versus violence uh, in the Vietnamese world, uh, in Vietnam um, as a culture, um, do you, feel like there's a difference in the way 
we think about violence uh, as Americans and as uh, Vietnamese people from Vietnam. I mean, I feel this is just the way I, I, I see it sometimes. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think. I feel like the Vietnamese people are not as violent as uh, Americans. Um, they're both kind of controlled and sort of... Um, it, it, it's not very apparent uh, when we think about it, but maybe I'm off. Maybe I don't know enough to think uh, back to our history of, of, of Vietnamese people being violent or using... I feel like we don't really use a whole lot of violent language um, if we comparing if we're comparing today's um, you know apples to apples. Right. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, oh, there's so many things here. Um, I think there's there's cultural, right? There's cultural tendencies towards violence, and then there's actual physical materialized violence. And I think when it comes to the material violence. It's hard to say because America has means of mass destruction, whereas the Vietnamese never truly did. Like we don't have an, an atom bomb. Um, even during the war, uh, many uh, Vietnamese nationals, you know, their, their weaponry was antiquated. Um, and despite that, you know, uh, they won at Ming uh, Fu against the French using, you know, old Japanese artillery. Um, so it's, it's, it is apples to oranges. Um, with that said, you know, the Vietnamese as various regimes, like the Nguyen dynasty, the Lê dynasties, they did have genocidal conquests on the Cham, the Hmong, right? And so we, we do have our own legacy of um, a, a colonialization and expansionist uh, tendencies around uh, indigeneity and indigenous communities in Vietnam, which are still felt today. Um, and, and so we're not uh, angelic, right? And I think this is also important for Vietnamese people to discuss because in relation to America, we are the perennial victims. And that has its own reductive narrative. It's like, they're just innocent, you know, pitiful victims. And it's like, no, we, we, we have our own history of power and power structures um, that, that are entirely separate from American interference. Um, with that said, I think we do have, America is still very young, right? And not only that, but it's informed by Western philosophy, which has been, has a long legacy of justifying genocide and death, often through divine, um, you know, a Christian, Right. justification this is ultimately propaganda but you know the, the the whole idea of of conquering the new world was to enlighten and civilize the natives right this this quote-unquote civilization and and so there's a, a a longer legacy of conquest enacted in a very young country right? so that that kind of friction i think creates a lot of toxicity in the way Americans have been thinking and conducting themselves both domestically and uh, internationally. My observation, and I only have my observation in Vietnamese culture is that there's a lot of respect to the dead, you know, right away, right? The ancestors. And so there are things that uh, surround death that we can't even say. It's taboo to say. It's taboo to put your 
the, the photo of the living next to the photo of the dead. Right. Because then it's like, yo, right? Yo, king, right? So yo and king is, is bringing forth that energy. So when I was explaining to my aunt, who speaks very little English, about American destructive um, lexicon, you know, kill it, you're killing it, you're smashing it, slay them. And I tried to translate it to Vietnamese and explain it to her. She had no understanding. She's like, what? I don't understand. Why would they say that? Right. It was so, it was so alien to her. And it's like, right? And, and, and you know, so we, 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 we value words because we, the Vietnamese culture believed that words begin thought. And this is Taoist and Buddhist practices too, right? The thought and the word combine to, do, to create karma. It draws, you know, if you say bad things, bad things will come to you and visit you, right? If you say good things, you can ward things off. And so it begins with language. And I think the big difference between the two cultures is that Vietnamese culture pays much more respect to the power of language. They are literally spells, right? This is why it's called spelling, right? We, we think of them as spells. And so I think there's much more care, um, but it's, I, it, I would be too hard pressed to say who's more violent, but I think the cultures, definitely one culture in America is much more violent culturally um, than Vietnamese. The, the, those are wonderful distinctions. Um, my, my father growing up would never allow us to say kill in Vietnamese or you know dying. We, we just, they were banned in our family. So mm -hmm. as you're talking about this, it brings back memories of, I, and I thought it was just my dad, but now that you, you, you talk about it, I mean, we could, we make these jokes in family gatherings, extended families, and they would correct us too. We weren't allowed to say these very violent terms. And now it all makes sense because it's so close. The words and, and words becoming action is very um, close in the Vietnamese culture. It's manifest, right? And it, it also, I want to say this, when we compare Vietnamese and America, we often compare around the 60s and 70s. And then we, we, we are seen as a small country, you know, um, imperialized by a large superpower. And that is true. However, I think we need to give ourselves a lot of credit for being a really old culture, mm. much older and wiser Right, we, we went through so many stages of development and so much knowledge, right, embedded into the way we think. And we are a country no larger than California that has been at war in various terms for a millennia. So just think about it, a thousand years of nearly perpetual, all the way, all the way back to Kublai Khan's invasion, the Chinese invasion, the Japanese, right, the Cambodia, the Khmer invasion. There's so much war and we have evolved and created a culture around death, both respecting it and trying to avoid it and healing from it, that we, we are so much more wise compared to America, who still has not really come to terms and or even recognize a lot of its uh, uh, violences, both domestic and abroad. And so I think I want to point to that. It's like, we, we've already been there. We've been, we kind of, been navigating this for a long for thousands of years as a country and it shows and so I think it's inevitable my hope then is that America will finally arrive 
at, if, it, if it lasts long enough, it can arrive at a point that we have already got to as, as Vietnamese. We are ahead where America gets to a point where they say, you know what, we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't say kill. Maybe we shouldn't make violence this normalized because it's been, it hasn't worked for us thus far. Uh, that seems very far and, and to me, fantastical standing where I am now. But I think hopefully if evolution is a line of progress, um, then America will catch up to Vietnamese culture in this way. It's a beautiful thought. I struggle with this idea of struggle. And it's a, it's a theme that I bring back in a lot of my interviews. Uh, I feel like the struggles of the first generation were intense. Uh, and we, as the one and a half or the second generation, we benefited in many different ways from the struggle. My children are not going to, um, they're not going to be a part of that experience, uh, perhaps maybe through peripheral stories that I, I tell them about my parents and their, my, my grandfather, you know, was killed um, under, um, you know, just really dark circum circumstances. And I, I struggle with the struggle because I, on one hand, really love the fact that um, somebody like you have so many beautiful things to say uh, from the pain that you've experienced. How do you feel about, um, you know, our third and fourth generation of uh, our descendants not really having to experience, um, I mean, really who wants to experience bad things, but at the same time, there's so much beauty that comes from the things that we had to go through. Yeah, I, I approach this um, from a Buddhist perspective, which says, you know, life is suffering. And there has never been a generation that hasn't suffered collectively. And, you know, in our diaspora, there are various degrees, right? And I think we also have to be careful not to get into this kind of suffering Olympics with each other and saying, you know, because my, our parents love doing that, by the way. Right? My mother, when I was your age, I would wake up at five in the morning and sell bananas on a wrap. I was like, mom, I, there's no banana, there's no wrap. I can't do it even if I wanted to, right? So they, they use that, you know, to kind of create this hierarchy of suffering. So I'm very aware of the suffering Olympics that happens in Vietnamese communities, right? Um, which is also, again, a sign, an innovation, right? It's like, well, I don't have English. I don't have education. I don't have anything over my children in this new world, this new country, except my suffering. So I want to use it to, to control them, right? And I was like, I get it. Um, so I, all, I also don't want to kind of see our, our, our legacy as various degrees of suffering because we know that we will, we will all suffer tremendously in our own ways, right? Whether you experience war or not, um, that there are people who live relatively privileged lives who ended their lives. Um, and America is going through that crisis now of mental health, right? And so on, on one hand, it's all about the relative impact. Our elders who've been through so much deem that life is worth living. And there are folks with so much more privilege than us. There are folks who were born white and male, silver spoon, and they have completely self-destructive lives and, and even self-hating lives. Um, and, and so I think for me, it's every, every generation will have 
its own tremendous suffering. And, and in that way, um, th there will always be beauty possible when we examine it, right? Because they are tied to each other. And that's what I tried to, to, to portray in, in my works is that you can't have the light without the dark because you don't know how bright it is. You need the dark to know how bright the light is. And you know, I, I want to bring up a, a specific example that you and I both share, which yeah. is uh, family members in the nail, the nail industry. And here's what I mean by that. The struggle of, um, of the past or the struggle of making a living that no longer exists really the narratives in their mind because they're making they're making a really good living a lot of them are living in places where there's not much of a struggle or not reminded of a struggle so what happens they spend their time a lot of time in casinos or nyao and this whole like idea of um i remember my father and mother used to say so it means like you're so soon and hua means you change into crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's sort of what I, I fear most about the next generations of, you know, um, parents like us who give our children such a, a, a wonderful existence and it's easy for them to live, but, you know, they lose the, the, the like the, you know, like a pearl in the oyster, that friction that creates this uh, beautiful, smooth, um, beautiful um, story that, that we need as humans, um, to to create i i feel wow i love i i loved i'm gonna remember that saying i never heard it until now soon wow why do you yeah <laughs> i mean that could be that could describe white privilege right because what it's saying is that the privilege and the luxury creates a mental illness right that idea that one is so lush in opulence that is you start to lose your mind and i, I think that's actually super accurate and because what, what it means, soon as luxury means that there's no more obligation. Yeah. Right. And I think regardless of how much one suffers, I believe what we're both getting at here is that regardless of how much you suffer or how little you suffer, living well means you have obligations to each other. And you, when you lose that obligation and responsibility and care for each other, you start to lose your mind. And, and I think that's incredibly wise, what your parents said. Do you ever envision yourself um, spending more time in Vietnam? Um, and I'm not, I don't mean like to retire or live there, but spending a good amount of um, your, your focus and concentration in breaking down the ways you see life here in the US. Uh, would you ever do that for? Vietnam? I mean, that I don't mean to put that responsibility on you, but I would love to hear if you have any thoughts about the future of going back to make observations and writing about it. Yeah, about yeah. I, it's, a, it's a thing I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, it's hard for me to even be in Vietnam without having a very subjective view of grief because the Vietnam that I know is the one given to me by my family um, in the diaspora. And every time I go back, I watch them become disoriented in how vast and how quickly Vietnam has changed, right? So there's a double displacement when I watched my mother return and realized the street names were changed. 
realize you know various places were gone and now there's coca-cola billboards and so the, the the modernization of vietnam has in a way left the vietnam that i was told about behind and so every time i go there's almost like this grief that i feel that you know is lost forever and and so it's emotionally difficult um and when it comes to kind of assessing vietnam uh as you know, almost a, a, a journalist or a historian, I'm uneasy with it because, you know, I don't know. I, I don't. I I, I was brought up in America, and I feel like I'm just wary of performing uh, an imperial gaze again, right? Mm -hmm. From from someone who has benefited from America, has the means, the education, and then returning to kind of assess it. Because then I'm like, well, assess it for whom? Mm -hmm. I write in English, so my audience will be American. And I, I don't want to be the, the bridge or the translator of ethnography for Vietnamese people for what will end up being a predominantly white audience. Um, and so I think for, for me, I would rather have someone from Vietnam writing in English do that work. And, and I think if, if that person is not available now, I would rather wait for that person to arrive to do that work than do it myself. That is, um, it's a deep way of looking at it because I just, I've fantasized about just living in Vietnam all the time. And, you know, to take on that perspective that you just explained to, to me is, um, that's a lot of uh, responsibility uh, to, to think about. You know, um, as we're ending our hour, I would love to um, ask you if you could, you know, like in the Seth Meyers, uh, he had asked uh, if you could say something in Vietnamese um, to your mother. And that uh, brought me to tears. And, you know, I just watched it again. Uh, my brother sent me the clip without him knowing that I watched it many, yeah. many times. And it brought me to tears. And so I'm wondering if you could say something in Vietnamese to the audience um, as we say goodbye to each other right now. Yeah. Um... Xin chào các bạn, uh, Ocean Vương hay là Hải Vương uh, rất là vui lòng và tự hào uh, là người uh, uh, tác giả Việt Nam uh, có gốc Việt Nam ở Mỹ. Uh, mình rất là vui vẻ mà rất là hãnh diện uh, có một cái tiếng uh, Việt Nam ở trong cái uh, cái văn chương của của nước Mỹ uh, và tiếng Anh uh, và mình uh, mình lúc nào cũng cũng nhìn cái cái gốc của mình là chơi nhất cái cái rễ của mình là người Việt Nam cái đó là không có gì đặc biệt hơn một cái quê hương không? mình 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 có cái rễ rồi đó, thì mình phải chăm sóc nó tại mình nếu mình mình trồng cây mình trồng lúa mình thấy là cái rễ mà nếu mà nó bị nhiễm trùng là nó rớt nó nó sẽ tan đó. thì cái, cái, cái nghiệp nói chuyện với nhau như vậy với, với anh Kenneth với, với, với Ocean là, là mình đang chăn, chăn sóc cái rễ để cho protect nó để cho nó nó, 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 nó có nó, nó càng đi mình nghĩ là cái cái cây nó phải đi lên mà đặc sự cái cây nó càng lên nó càng nở cái rễ nó cũng vẫn còn nở ở dưới nữa đó thì mình phải chăm sóc ở trên và ở dưới thì cái rễ của mình rễ Việt Nam thì mình rất là tự hào có cái rễ đó nhưng mà kiếp sau mình cũng không muốn làm người khác mình muốn vẫn còn tiếp tục làm người Việt Nam 
Hôm nay uh, Kenneth cảm ơn Hải, cảm ơn Ocean um, đã dành thời gian và hy vọng um, một ngày gần gần đây thì uh, anh em mình nói chuyện với nhau tiếng Việt um, entirely in English. I mean in Vietnamese. Beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Okay. Cảm ơn anh. <laughs> cảm ơn, cảm ơn Ocean. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.